This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Michal Gall from the University of Haifa. Michal explains how companies can now use algorithms to collude and what that means for consumers. A test I really like here was suggested by USFTC Commissioner Marine Olshausen. She suggested a simple test that captures many of these easy cases that if the word algorithm can be replaced by the phrase a guy named Bob, then algorithms can be dealt with in the same way as traditional agreements. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. In the competition law world, when competitors get together and agree on prices, it's been called the supreme evil of antitrust. It's even been called a cancer on our economy. But what if colluding doesn't involve executives meeting in a smoke-filled room? Or, as is more likely in Australia, in a pub? What if it's algorithms that are colluding? What then? Now, before we get into the answers to that question, there's some other matters I want to share with you. Firstly, I can't let the occasion go by without celebrating that, in case you haven't noticed, this is the 10th episode of the Competition Law Podcast. Woohoo! We've reached double digits. So a big shout out to all our guests and to all of you who've joined, subscribed, listened and shared the podcast. Thank you. I've learned a lot and I hope you have too. Not to mention, it's been a lot of fun. I also have some other exciting news to share. I've received requests for transcripts of episodes, and so from this week, you'll find these available for download from episode one onwards on the website. Again, that's competitionlaw.com. You can buy a transcript for a small fee, which means that if enough of you buy them, I'll just cover my costs. But why is there a charge? I hear you asking. That's not an unreasonable question, given we're now all so used to getting free stuff on the internet. And that probably means this is a good time to let you know that the Competition Law Podcast doesn't receive any funding or other support, either from the university with which I'm associated, or for that matter, from any other source. It's an entirely independent venture of mine, and one that I'm passionate about and committed to, despite personal cost. Okay, lastly, I promise, from this week onwards, Competition Law episodes will be released fortnightly instead of weekly. I'm making this change to be sure I can continue providing you with a really high quality and enjoyable listening experience. But it does mean you're going to have to hang out a little longer for your next instalment. Right, back to this week's episode, Algorithmic Collusion. This is something competition experts are thinking about a lot. And one of those experts is my good friend, Professor Michel Gaul. Michel has written a series of brilliant papers analyzing the ways in which algorithms can help competing firms to collude at our expense as consumers. She thinks current laws may not cut the mustard in dealing with this sort of thing. And she's got some fascinating views on what needs to change. Before we got into that, though, 
We spent about 30 minutes at the start talking about how algorithms work and the many benefits they provide. We also went over how collusion or cartels work and what makes them last. Understanding these things is important, of course, if we're to understand how algorithms might facilitate and sustain collusion. So, here we go. Michel, the word algorithm is most commonly associated with computers. But do people themselves use algorithms? I mean, to make ordinary decisions in our daily lives? Definitely. Definitely. We use it all the time. Actually, when we make decisions, we use decision trees that are based on different parameters that we think are important. Think about getting up in the morning and deciding what to wear. You have many options, but you take into account relevant data points, such as what is the weather outside? What is the occasion? How comfortable am I in a certain type of clothes? And then you weigh these parameters in order to reach an outcome that most accords with your preferences. For example, if I'm going to a formal party, I cannot wear my comfortable jumpsuit and whatever. So these decision trees are actually algorithms that we use all the time in our daily lives. Coded algorithms actually do the same. They use predetermined decision procedures in order to suggest a decision when we input particular data to them. So tell us a bit more about these coded algorithms. I think you've said they operate at different levels of abstraction and you've distinguished between an expert algorithm and a learning algorithm. What do you mean by that? Computer scientists have separated two main types of algorithms. One is an expert algorithm. This is an algorithm where all the parameters are dictated by the coder in advance. So it would tell you if the weather is beyond a certain temperature, then you should wear this type of clothes. I wish I had one of these algorithms when I'm deciding what to wear. <laughs> <laughs> and the other type of algorithm is, I think, the more interesting one, but the more complicated one also. It's called a learning algorithm. And these are algorithms that do not follow strict static program instructions, but rather build the decision process by learning themselves from the data. And what they employ is, and I'm going to use a buzzword now that I think that many might have heard about, a lot of them uh, employ what is called machine learning. And this is a type of artificial intelligence that gives computers the ability to learn from the data that is inputted into them without the need for a coder to define a priori what they can learn from this data. And this is done in a large range of computing tasks. For example, Facebook has used the vast number of pictures that they have of different people that are uploaded to their site. And the fact that many people tag others, so you actually know who are in the picture. So they have a lot of data, and they use it in order to create a much better algorithm for visual recognition. So that's why Facebook suggests tags for people in your photo. Is that right? It's part of it. Yeah, you do it actually to signal to your friends. Hoo-hoo, look, I've put your picture up there. And um, <laughs> this was a great moment in my life and whatever. However, this 
can also help the algorithm learn. Because if you have a hundred pictures where people tagged the same person and you can see the same person from very different angles. So the algorithm actually learns from these pictures. It can learn itself how to better recognize that person next time you see a picture with that person. And then you can use that learning in order to recognize people when pictures where they were not tagged. So if we think about the role and the potential of algorithms in the computer world, they really go along with big data and fast digital connectivity and also just enormous increases in computational and storage capacity. If you put all those things together, Michal, what are the advantages that they offer for decision-making? First of all, you're very right. It's not only the algorithms. It's the whole digital environment which enables the role that algorithms play in our modern economies, modern digital economies, because it's not only the algorithm, which is the way to make decisions given certain data, but it's also, of course, the amounts, the vast amounts of big data that the algorithms can learn from, and, of course, the speed that they can then translate this learning into a decision and then convey the decision to the decision maker. And algorithms actually change our lives in many, many ways. They create significant advantages in decision-making, both to consumers and to suppliers. For example, let's use something that I think we all use. Think about Google search. Okay, You want to know something. This morning, in preparing for this podcast, I wanted to go back and to remind myself what were the overchargers in the vitamins cartel. Right. So I, I was thinking you might say you wanted to look up what a podcast is, Michelle. I'm very relieved you didn't do that. I'm not that backwards, but yes, sorry, I've diverted you. Yes, the overcharges in in a famous cartel case involving animal vitamins. You look that up. Yeah. So what I do is I go to Google. I input several words that are connected to what I want to know. And it takes less than a second for the Google algorithm to mine the data out there, mine the websites, and provide me with links that the algorithm thinks are most related to my question. So think about it. There's so much data out there, so many answers, so many websites. What the algorithm did here is mine what's out there and provide me with a very, very fast answer that many times would provide me with the information that I need, especially if this is a simple question. And this algorithm is very sophisticated. It even knows what I've searched in the past, and it knows my areas of interest. So the answers that I would get might be even different than the answers that somebody else would get for the exact same search. And of course, it doesn't just help us with answering questions that we need answered to get on with our lives, but it helps us as consumers, doesn't it, really, in ways that we never had available to us before when we're looking for products we want to buy, comparing product offerings that are out there on the market. 
it's really transformed our whole shopping experience, hasn't it? It's definitely true. I cannot agree more. And again, we're only in the beginning stages of the um, uses of these algorithms. And it's going to be much more advanced and faster in the future. But think about things like rating systems that are based on how the algorithm rates different things. It's not only consumers, but sometimes the algorithm would give different weights to different parameters. And then you can better compare the different suggestions or the different products or services which are out there. And the algorithm can also change different aspects of our lives. For example, uh, navigation. Think about the algorithm behind Waze. Waze is a navigation application that is based not only on the routes available, but also on the data of how fast people are actually going on a certain route at a certain time. That has changed the way that we go from point X to point Z, because if the navigation application tells us that one route is more congested than the other, at a certain time, we will use a different route. What about for businesses, though, for the product and service providers? What are the advantages for them of algorithms? The advantages are vast because suppliers can more quickly and efficiently analyze large amounts of data, which allow them to better respond to consumer demand. And they can be used in a myriad of tasks, for example, determining efficient levels and locations for production, determining storage, assessing risk levels, even determining prices and conditions of sale at a certain time, which optimize the supplier's revenues. Can you give us some examples of companies that might use pricing algorithms, that is, algorithms to set prices? Sure. Let me give you two examples that I think we're all familiar with. One is Uber. When you order a taxi ride, there's an algorithm that determines how much you would pay for that ride in a certain time. So it's not only your location, it's not only the time of day, it's the availability of other taxis in the area. So that when supply is low, when there are not a lot of taxi drivers in the area, the price will rise. This is called surge pricing, by the way. That created a lot of um, concern when Jessica Simpson ordered an Uber taxi ride in New York City for both her kids to drop them off at birthday parties that were not so far away. And she ended up paying a few hundreds of dollars. And this is the algorithm. Should I know who's Jessica Simpson? (laughs) Am I revealing some (laughs) ignorance here, (laughs) Michal? I know who Kim Kardashian is, but should I know who Jessica Simpson is? <laughs> well, I don't want to give you a mistaken answer here, but I think she's a, an American celebrity that does talk shows and she's a famous cook, but I, I hope I'm not. <laughs> and probably one who could afford the surge pricing, I might oh, yeah. oh, yeah, but it was, a, you know, this kind of information is good for her blog and it created a lot of reaction towards I imagine. Uber. Yeah. Another example is Amazon, which many people use to do at least some of their shopping. Amazon, again, has an algorithm that is designed to optimize 
the revenues that Amazon gets from certain products that it sells on its website. I mean, I think it's important that people also know that it's not only the big firms which are using pricing algorithms. Today, you can yeah. buy off-the-shelf pricing algorithms. Some examples are firms like Feedvisor or Inoptimizer, and these are pricing engines that everybody can buy, which are based on artificial intelligence and uses data on competitors' and consumers' behavior in order to optimize the price for the firms using it. Okay, well, I think a bit later we're going to talk also about how we as consumers might use algorithms. But first of all, Michal, there's much talk in the competition policy and legal world about the potential for algorithms to harm competition. We've just talked about all its benefits. So now let's look at the possible downside or dark side. In a nutshell, how would you put the concerns? Well, in a nutshell, the concern is that the algorithms can make coordination among suppliers easier and quicker than ever before. So what you get are not prices that each firm determines on its own independently, but what you might get are prices which are based on some form of collusive behavior among the different competitors. So the actual concern is that algorithms would make price-fixing conduct or make cartels easier than ever before. The problem with cartels is, of course, the huge overcharges that they can then impose on consumers. Do we have any data on just what those price effects might be for consumers? Well, there's a lot of data, and and I think that uh, anybody who's interested in this, a good place to look and read is the work of John Connor from Purdue. And he has studied many cartels all over the world. And what he's found was that the median average overcharge for all types of cartels over all time periods is 23%. This is only the average. Let me just give you two pointers here, which I think give you some flavor of what we're talking about. The vitamins cartel, which Karan, as you said before, was an international cartel that sold vitamins for animal feed, a very important in a livestock. And the overcharges in the U.S. alone were more than 500 million. This is only a drop of how large the overcharges were in other places around the world. And another flavor of why cartels are so harmful is that it was estimated that the cartel overcharges in developing countries are estimated to be larger than all foreign aid that they receive. Very significant. What about another potential harm that comes to mind as a result of algorithms? Isn't there a possibility of price discrimination? So if I've got a shopping history on Amazon and it knows that on average I've been prepared to spend a certain amount on the books I buy on Amazon, doesn't it mean that it's able to through its algorithm, make sure it presents me with a price that it knows I'm going to pay. Is that 
an algorithmic harm? And if so, does it have any relevance to coordination or is it just about Amazon's behavior on its own? Price discrimination is a subject which is currently being debated by economists and by legal scholars. Consumers are actually, in the short run, they're definitely harmed by it because if the algorithm knows information about my preferences and can then use that information in order to create what is called the personalized price. So if I'm a law professor and I am really interested in competition law books, for example, I might get a much higher price for the exact same book as a different consumer. And actually, what I do with my students is we all sit in class with their computers. I sit with mine. And at the exact same time, we look for the same flight from point A to point B at the exact same time of the day. And then we compare the prices and it's always, you know, in a way it's fun, but it's also eye-opening <laughs> that yes. they get very different prices even among themselves. And this mm. is the doing of an algorithm. Mm. This is the doing of an algorithm that has studied their preferences. Now, does this harm consumers? In the short run, it definitely does. It harms some of them. It harms those that get the higher prices. But there is a whole debate whether price discrimination is actually welfare reducing or welfare increasing even, because by charging different prices to different consumers, the suppliers can then increase their revenues and then maybe supply things or invest in R&D in some products or services which they could not have supplied otherwise. So I cannot give you a black and white answer. However, there's some interesting work by Oren Vargill from Harvard and others who have shown that a lot of this price discrimination is based on our biases, not our real preferences, but our biases. And when that is true, when you take into account biases, then price discrimination is definitely welfare reducing overall. Wow. Okay. I think I've steered us a bit away from the question of how algorithms might facilitate coordination. And I want to just come back to that. The idea of competitors colluding or entering into a cartel, obviously not a new idea. It's been happening for many, many decades. Help us understand, how does this actually work? Because competition is cutthroat often. How do they actually come to an arrangement in which they have any trust in each other? Well, actually, somebody got a Nobel for that. <laughs> George Stigler from the University of Chicago got a Nobel for identifying the conditions that must exist for coordination to take place. Because as you rightly point out, Karan, you want to do better than your competitors. You want more consumers to come and buy from you. So there's an inherent instability in any agreement behind competitors. So what Stigler did is he actually studied such behavior and he pointed to three cumulative conditions that must exist. So the first is reaching an understanding or an agreement on what term conditions 
will be profitable for all the parties to the agreement. So these might be agreements on price, on quantity, on quality, for example. And it implies that all parties should be better off with the agreement than without the agreement, because otherwise, why agree? The second is the detection of deviations from this super competitive equilibrium, because as you rightly said, competitors want to increase their own profits. If they set a certain price and that price is high, all a competitor might need to do is set a price which is slightly lower and capture many more consumers. So they have an inherent motivation to deviate. To cheat, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so if the other cartel members can detect deviation very fast, that would sustain the agreement. And the third condition that he's talking about is creating a credible threat of retaliation or punishing those who deviate or those who cheat. Because if you find somebody who cheated and you do nothing, why would he not cheat? However, if you punish him severely for his cheating, and he knows that in advance, then his motivation or incentives for cheating are going to be reduced. So cheating would be setting a price that undercuts the agreed cartel price and therefore getting more customers as a result. Exactly. Or let's say that we divided the market among ourselves. And I said that I will sell only in the north and you would sell only in the south. And now I start selling secretly to some consumers in the south. That would be cheating. Now, it's good for me because... I now have more consumers. However, if you can detect that and punish me, for example, by now selling to more consumers that were supposed to be only my consumers, then that would create an incentive not to cheat in the first place. Mm, Okay. Well, we're going to talk about how algorithms make all of those conditions easier to meet. But before we get there... Are there particular types of markets where collusion, in the way that you've described it, is more likely to happen and more likely to last, to be stable? Definitely. And I should add that economic theory recognizes a fourth condition that must exist for coordination to take place. And these are high entry barriers into the market where coordination takes place. What I mean here in simple terms is that it's difficult for others to enter the market and simply set a lower price. Because think about it. Let's assume that there's a market, there are three competitors, and they fix prices at a high level. And it's easy for me to enter into that market. Now, let's say that they set the price at $20 per product. Okay, this is a high price because it costs them and me $10 to produce that product. Now, if I can easily enter the market, if I see such a high price, I say, wow, I can make a huge profit there. I can enter, I can charge a price of 19 and all the consumers would come to me. So you can come in and disrupt the cartel. Exactly. So if mm-hmm. it's easy for others to enter the cartel is going to be very difficult to sustain. 
So in economics speak, Michael, we talk about entry barriers as one aspect of the structure of the market that is highly relevant in determining whether or not it's likely to be conducive to a cartel or collusion. What are other aspects of the market structure that are relevant? Some aspects are the number of firms competing in the market because we even see in our daily lives that reaching an agreement with one person is much easier than reaching an agreement with 10 persons. So the number of people or the number of competitors is very important. Also, how differentiated the products are. So if we're all selling the same product, if we're all selling gas, okay, gas is supposed to be the same regardless of which gas station you enter into. The product variables are the same. However, if we're selling types of clothes, so there might be different types of clothing and people might have different preferences for different types of clothing, there an agreement would be much more difficult to reach. And Economic studies have also centered on what they call the personality of the firms, because as we all know, firms are operated by humans at the end of the day. So it depends. Some firms tend to act as mavericks, for example, and they like to be newcomers and disrupt the market. Where you have such a maverick, collusion is going to be much harder to sustain, for example. Well, let's get back to algorithms then. How does the use of an algorithm help with um, meeting the conditions, Stigler's conditions you identified for effectively cartelizing a market, these conditions of agreement and detection of cheating and having a credible threat of retaliation for cheating? How do algorithms get around these problems? Well, I think that it's actually good, as you suggested, to go back to Stigler's terms and think about how algorithms affect them in order to explain why algorithms actually change some of the ability of firms to coordinate. So reaching an agreement, for example, algorithms can much more easily calculate the joint profit maximizing price because they can have more data. Today, a lot of the data on your rival's prices is transparent. You can find it online. The speed of gathering this data is much faster. You actually don't need to drive by your competitor's gas station. Okay, You have other means, digital means, to figure out what your competitors are charging. And it can be real time. Definitely. So as we know, petrol prices can be adjusted every half an hour, if not less, over the day. So if you have access to not just prices, but price changes of your competitors, that can be extraordinarily helpful. Definitely. And also the sophistication, because there are many parameters that might come into setting an optimal price. And algorithms are very sophisticated. And I think to use some studies, Google performed studies on artificial intelligence by one of the firms that it owns, which is called DeepMinds, and it found that algorithmic interactions might be much more sophisticated and sustain a much more complex equilibria than humans can, unless humans have a lot of time to figure out how to balance the different interests. 
And so machine learning here plays an important part in reaching a coordinated outcome by algorithms. And I should also say that algorithms change the mode of dynamics of communication, which is needed to reach an agreement. Because think about it. If you have an algorithm and I'm your competitor and I can see your algorithm, you don't actually have to start acting in a certain way for me to understand how you're going to make your decision. Because you have just shown me your decision tree. You have just shown me that if certain data points are inputted into the algorithm, the outcome would be a certain decision. So if you think about it, the algorithms allow each other and transparency of algorithms that allow competitors to read the minds of their other competitors. And to do so in a way that's quite rational and devoid of the type of personality and personality issues that you were referring to before. Right, and that's a very good point and a very uh, interesting one. Although there's some interesting studies that go the other way and show that cartels are sometimes sustained by the fact that humans feel sometimes uneasy <laughs> to cheat on their friends or on their rivals and on those which are part of their agreement. And algorithms do not care. <laughs> oh, well, it's the messiness of being human, and I rather like it. Right. <laughs> <Well, Exactly. laughs> when it comes to feeling uneasy about cheating, that's for sure. Exactly. Now, I'm sure you're going to say also that algorithms would make that second condition of Stigler's much easier to achieve also, and that's to detect when your competitor is cheating on you again because you've got access to real-time data and changes in the data being used by a competitor. What about the third condition, though? How do algorithms help create a credible threat of retaliation when there is cheating? Well, I think it's easy to explain this with an example. So let's assume that your competitor charges $19.5 instead of the 20 that it promised that it would charge. And you detect this, and detection might be immediate because we're talking about very fast connection levels. You might set your algorithm in a way that once you see the 19 and a half, you see a price lower than 20, you immediately charge a much lower price. So you do not set the 19 and a half. Now you set the 10 or you set the 15 or whatever. And because detection is so immediate and because retaliation is so fast, your competitors would have much lower incentives in the first place to mm -hmm. deviate from what you've agreed upon. It makes the whole arrangement so much more stable and sustainable. But tell us about this coordination on prices in a digital market. We talked about discrimination before, and although that wasn't entirely relevant to our discussion, it does come up in this way. If companies are able to build digital profiles on their consumers down to the individual level, doesn't that make coordination between competitors very difficult? Because we're not talking about one price point for a product. We're talking about an individualized, personalized price per individual consumer. 
You're definitely right. And this is a great question. And actually, this is one of the counter-arguments that was raised by some scholars with regard to the ability of algorithms to increase the ability to engage in a coordinating conduct. Because if you don't have one price for all, but you have one price for each consumer, it might be much more difficult to then coordinate. So you're very right. However, does this imply that algorithms would never be able to coordinate or that their incentives to coordinate would be much weaker? I think that there are at least some answers to this, or at least some things that I think we should think about. One is that firms might reach market division agreements so that, as I said before, I sell to consumers in the north and you in the south, or I sell to businesses and you sell to individuals, and they all agree not to enter each other's market. These are called market division agreements. And market division agreements overcome this problem because I set whatever price I want to the consumers in my group. And you set whatever price you want to each and every consumer in your group. So it overcomes this problem. Another possibility is that if all firms have the same data about consumer preferences, if they all use the same digital profiles, they would all reach the same decisions with regard to the price that they would charge from each and every consumer. And I should also add that the threat of personalized pricing might not be as significant as some researchers claim, partly because there's a very strong consumer backlash, at least now, against personalized pricing. And Amazon has felt that in one episode, for example, when it attempted to do so. And so firms are balancing this consumer backlash against personalized pricing with the revenues that they can make from such personalized pricing. And not all firms in all situations use personalized pricing. No. Well, talking about uh, consumers fighting back, Michal, you've come up with a really intriguing idea about how consumers might counteract the negative effects of algorithms used by businesses that supply them. Talk us through this idea, because really this is based on the view that perhaps the market can fix this problem or this threat of algorithmic collusion or coordination. Tell us about your thinking on that. Well, in my work with um, Neva Elkin Koran, what we try to think is that whether we have to wait for competition authorities to solve the problems for us as consumers, or whether consumers can create self-help remedies in a way, whether they can fight back against the use of algorithm by suppliers that raises prices in the market. So one idea that we had is to use algorithms by consumers to fight algorithms used by suppliers. The idea here was to create what we called algorithmic consumers, or you might call them digital butlers. And these are algorithms which are employed by consumers 
which make and execute decisions on their behalf by communicating with supplier algorithms through the internet. So that what the algorithm does is it automatically identifies the need that a consumer has. It searches for an optimal purchase. And then it executes a transaction on behalf of the consumer. And it does all this automatically. So one example comes from Britain. And this is an application which is called Flipper. You pay £25 per year. And every morning, this algorithm automatically searches for you for the best deal in your area for energy market. And if there's a better deal than you had the day before, it automatically switches suppliers when it is profitable to do so. So it lowers your energy bill, and it actually has succeeded in lowering energy bills quite a lot. And if it does not lower it more than 25 pounds, then you actually don't pay anything. For the application which is great so it's a win-win situation so again this is an algorithm that works for the consumer checking searching making decision on the consumer's behalf for the benefit of the consumer sounds like a wonderful entrepreneurial opportunity to me michael but tell us how does this differ from digital virtual assistants like alexa or siri that might do a search for us for a product we're looking for and part of that search would be to compare the prices and I guess if we're naive we might assume they present us with the best price possible. Right. These digital consumers which are out there are becoming more and more popular. My brother for example he has three. Oh wow. (laughs) I don't know why he needs three but he said okay I have one on the kitchen table I have one on my desk And where should I put the third one? So he put it in the car so that the kids can enjoy that. Ah. (laughs) I think that's quite crazy. Does he pit them against each other and see who can come up with the best deal? (laughs) That's a great idea. I don't think he has. I will suggest that to him. (laughs) Anyway, if you think about digital butlers like Alexa, what they do is they search and they suggest. They usually do not make the decision for you. So this is the part which is usually lacking. However, they are definitely geared towards there. So the vision of some of these companies is that humans do less thinking when it comes to the small decisions that make up daily life. So we are going to decide for you. These algorithms are going to be able to make decisions for you and relieve you from the small decisions. Another example, which is interesting, is a washing machine that was created by cooperation between IBM and Samsung. That washing machine is connected to sensors which are placed under your detergent. So when the detergent level becomes low, when the sensor detects that you need to buy a new detergent, it automatically searches for a detergent that fits your preferences that you inputted in the beginning into the algorithm. For example, if you're allergic, you want a certain type of detergent, etc. And then what the algorithm does is it automatically buys that detergent for you. And all you get is you get an SMS telling you that a new detergent will arrive at your doorstep 
on this date, which I think in a way is incredible. And if you add robots to that, and robots are developing now, you won't even have to put the detergent in place because the robot will <laughs> in go, the washing machine. it will pick up the detergent, and it will put it where it belongs. It's incredible. Well, Michal, I am for anything that will reduce my time in the laundry. <laughs> But I imagine these market-based solutions, they'd have their own limitations. Surely you're not suggesting that we really don't need to look to competition law or competition authorities to help out with the risk of algorithmic collusion, are you? You're definitely right. Algorithmic consumers or digital butlers can go only that far. They can reduce... some of the effects of market power of suppliers. For example, if they create buying groups, okay, why wouldn't an algorithm be employed by many consumers looking for the same detergent? So once you buy a lot of detergent, you might get a lower price. Also, if a thousand people buy detergent through the algorithmic consumer, then the supplier does not know the digital profile of each and every one of them. So it might need to charge one price that is similar to all, and it could not engage in personalized pricing. Price discrimination. We, yeah, and price discrimination that we talked about. So algorithm consumers have a lot of potential, but they're also, as you say, limited. And part of it is concerns about whether and under which conditions Consumers can actually join together in order to create such buying power. These are questions that have to do with competition law. Another concern, I think, which is real, is that the market for algorithmic consumers could be dominated by digital butlers, which are not benign, and at least to some extent are not benign, And they serve the purposes of their suppliers. And indeed, if you think about it, the digital butlers which are out there, the major digital platform owners are already competing in the supply of digital assistance. And here, my good friends, Maurice Stucky and Ariel Ezrahi, in their seminal work on virtual competition, have actually argued that the incentives of these mega platform owners to dominate the market for digital butlers is huge because this might be our gateway into the internet okay we won't sit and search we will tell alexa uh look for us and buy something for us it would be automated or alexa would already know from our preferences that we need something it might even be connected to sensors that are placed all over our house So questions arise whether these digital butlers will necessarily always serve us as consumers or not. Yeah, that's distinct from the platform that owns them. So if we have to look to the law then, Michal, obviously there have been laws against cartel conduct for many, many years and the principles are fairly well settled. But you ask a really well put question, I think, and you've said, When it comes to algorithmic collusion, are we looking under the lamp while most of the occurrence in the real world is happening in the dark or outside the scope of the light? Do we need to widen the scope of the light by which you're referring to the law? Or do we need a whole new source of light altogether to shine on the problem of algorithmic collusion? 
So what's your essential answer to your own question? Is competition law up to the task? Well, competition law is up to the task with regard to certain types of algorithmic coordination. Some cases are easy, but some cases are much more difficult. I think we have to be very careful and go in small steps here. And we have to first understand how algorithms collude. We have to balance this against how they create positive effects to our markets and very carefully design our laws. So in my own work, this is what I try to do. I try to look very carefully at the legal rules against cartels, for example, and see how far they can go. And they definitely capture some instances, but not all. So what's a scenario involving algorithms colluding that would readily be caught by the law as it currently stands? I think that the easiest case is when firms use algorithms to make pricing decisions which are based on a prior agreement between them. So the algorithm is actually only the tool to implement such an agreement. So a clear agreement exists, and the only problem is actually proving the existence of the agreement. And this can be illustrated in the U.S. Topkins case, in which Topkins and his competitors designed and shared dynamic pricing algorithms, which were programmed to act in conformity with what they agreed before and set coordinating prices for what they sold, which was uh, posters that they sold online. So if you think about it, such a use of an algorithm is not much different from pricing according to a previously agreed upon formula, and they were found to be guilty. And a test I really like here was suggested by USFTC Commissioner Maureen Olshausen. She suggested a simple test that captures many of these easy cases that If the word algorithm can be replaced by the phrase a guy named Bob, then algorithms can be dealt with in the same way as traditional agreements. So Bob is just acting as the messenger to facilitate the execution of the agreement that was made previously by Tom and Pete, let's say. (laughs) Okay, so that's the easy scenario. Well, tell us about the hard basket cases then where you think the law might have to be stretched or reinvented or re-engineered in some way to catch algorithmic coordination. Well, the really hard cases or the more challenging cases arise when the algorithms are designed independently by the competitors to include decisional parameters that react to each Mm. other's decisions And that reaction and that kind of design of an algorithm actually strengthens or maintains a joint coordinated outcome. This can be done by expert algorithms or by learning algorithms. So an expert algorithm, for example, would code into the algorithm the expected reactions of competitors so that the coder sits and he codes and he says, if the algorithm of my competitor sets a price which is lower than 20, automatically react by setting a price of 15, for example. Or automatically 
reduce the price by X for this period. So this is an expert algorithm. It tells the algorithm exactly how to react. Again, there's no agreement here. There's no agreement. But each firm takes into account the possible reaction of the other firm in the market which employs an algorithm. But that's what humans do. They just do it less efficiently than the algorithms. And as we know, Michael, in the current law, there's a real problem with catching conduct where two businesses independently make decisions that are interdependent on the decisions of the other because they're just reacting to market forces. But the result or the effect is that their conduct is parallel so when you add algorithms to the mix, to me, that doesn't seem to invoke the law to any greater extent than it might be evoked when humans are involved. I completely agree. And so that the scenario that I was just talking about would not cover our legal definition of agreement, which needs some kind of intent to coordinate the conduct. However, in some situations, the algorithm can be used in order to help facilitate an agreement and indirectly prove the existence of an agreement. Because many jurisdictions prevent intentional, avoidable actions that allow competitors to more easily and effectively coordinate and that do not increase welfare. Let me give you an example from real life. Let's assume that Competitors exchange non-public information on future price increases among themselves. So now you know what your competitor is going to charge next week, and you can actually react to that. So such non-public price exchanges are seen as indirect indicators of agreements. Let's apply this to algorithms. There are at least some scenarios in which I would argue that algorithms can act in the same way, that algorithms can facilitate coordination, engage in potentially avoidable acts by the algorithms, programmers, and users. And these acts are unlikely to be necessary in order to achieve pro-competitive results. If these conditions are met, Algorithms might raise red flags with regard to the creation of agreements through the use of algorithms. Yeah, just to be clear, you're not positing a scenario where two competitors agree to each use an algorithm that would learn from the other, but rather independently a business decides to use an algorithm that would react to and predict the responses of its rival. And you say that independent action is a red flag, as you put it, or facilitating practice. I think you've used the wonderful phrase coordination by design. Is that a correct summation of the argument you're making? Well, I think there's a very, very fine line here that we need to carefully tread. And Mm. purely independent conduct Purely independent design is not an agreement, definitely not an agreement under existing laws. However, there are certain ways in which you design the algorithm, which in a way are similar 
Let me give you maybe a few examples mm. just to make maybe my point clearer. A first example is where competitors consciously use similar algorithms, even when better algorithms are ready, readily available to them. Aha, uh-huh. so that raises a red flag. Okay, a second example is when the programmers or users of learning algorithms consciously give them similar training data to that which is used to train their competitors' algorithms despite it not being the best training data readily available. And they know that by training their algorithms with the exact same data, their algorithms might reach similar decisions with regard to prices and strategies. And another example is when the users make it easier for their competitors to observe their algorithms or their databases. And the competitors actually make use of this opportunity. So you actually make your algorithm transparent to your competitor, even though it does not serve any other pro-competitive purpose. Your only purpose here is to make it easier for your competitors to observe your decision tree or the way that you're going to make your decisions with regard to pricing or other trade terms. So if there's no pro-competitive justification for it, you are doing it for your competitors to then react. And if your competitors actually take advantage of this and react, this can sometimes, under some circumstances, might be an agreement. Sometimes it might be an attempt to create an agreement if your competitors do not follow. Mm. So certainly there'd be a series of factors there that you would suggest competition authorities could look at to infer that there was an agreement, perhaps a tacit rather than an explicit agreement. But that's a big ask for competition authorities, isn't it? I mean, what type of expertise or capacity would they need to actually apply that approach in practice? I think that competition authorities need much more knowledge and expertise with regard to computer science. It's not enough now in the digital world to be an expert on the law or even on the economics of collusion. I think that some of the teams that work on digital issues might need computer scientists. And actually, this is already being done. In Britain, it's done. In the US, it's done. They add computer scientists to some of their teams. Because to understand an algorithm and understand the way that an algorithms interact, you need people who are experts in the design and the coding, in the implementation of such um, algorithms in practice. And let's assume that competition authorities can build that kind of capacity, Michael, thinking optimistically and apply the type of approach you've outlined and find liability for cartel by algorithm. Well, what would the remedy be aside from the fine that would be imposed? Would a competition authority order a business just to stop using that type of algorithm? In some cases, yes. In some cases, it might be that only part of the code would be prohibited. Again, an algorithm can serve both 
pro-competitive and anti-competitive goals at the same time. So it might be that a certain part of the code or certain use of the algorithm would be prohibited. For example, don't expose your algorithm to your competitors who do not lock in your algorithm so that you cannot change it and so that you signal a certain type of conduct over time to your competitors. It might be that remedies would relate to the algorithm itself. It might be that they would relate to part of the algorithm. It might be that they would relate to some of the conditions. And indeed, that again is premised on the competition authority having the type of relevant knowledge and expertise to decide which part of the algorithm to tamper with and which to leave alone, given you'd imagine there'd be quite a risk of, in fact, interfering with, with competition and innovation and serving consumers Definitely. if you get that wrong. Sounds like life is about to become, if not already, much more complicated for competition authorities. Michael. A couple of our colleagues, Maurice Stuckey and Ariel Exraki, to whom you referred before, have declared that algorithmic collusion is the end of competition as we know it. Are you in that same way of thinking or are you more upbeat about the capacity of the law and those who enforce it to adapt to these changes? Well, I think that at least some competition in some markets is going to change. So, Why use human coordination when algorithmic coordination is so much better and easier? Doesn't make sense, right? So I definitely think that we're going to see much more of algorithmic coordination. I think that firms are just starting to explore this way of making decisions and coordinating in the digital world. So some change is inevitable. It comes with the technology. Are we going to be able to still enjoy low prices and better quality products? I believe that definitely we are, at least to a certain extent. However, I also think that smart coordination among algorithms requires what I call smart regulation. We need to be much more smarter in the way that we think about these things. We're already playing catch up with technology. And it's important to think hard before this technology takes place in many of our markets to think how we can react to it. So part of it is, again, thinking about these facilitating practices as we just explored. Another part is to think whether there are some situations in which we might want to prevent coordinated conduct even if it's not based on agreement. Another part of it is to think about self-help remedies, like we talked about before. We talked about one form of self-help, but there are many other forms that we can think about. And then how far should the law go with regard to assisting consumers, or at least not preventing them from engaging in self-help? So all these are issues which are fascinating. Technology is running wild here. We have to run with it and think about these hard questions. Don't know about you, but after that, 
I'm thinking I might need to turn myself into an algorithmic consumer. And gee, I could really do with one of those digital butlers. But when it comes to algorithmic colluders, it does sound like competition law's got some catch up to do. Next on competition law, I talked to two academics about the latest salvo in the ongoing battle between the competition bosses in Brussels and Google. Professor Nicolas Petit and Professor Simonetta Vesoso share their views on the European Commission's decision relating to Google's Android practices. It's a must-listen episode. Until then, you can find links to Michelle's writing on algorithms in the show notes, as well as some of the other references she referred to. And if you've missed any episodes to date, you can always head to competitionlore.com to catch up. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly email and do share the podcast with others who might enjoy it. You could even show them how to subscribe. Not all of us are podcast aficionados after all. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.